Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to another special edition of the Rogue Report podcast. We have finally been able to secure... In fact, I had a big introduction, so I'm not going to say okay. name yet. So you are... Former company magazines, Northwest <laughs> Bachelor of the Year, a history graduate like me, uh, your current host of Sky Sports flagship show, Monday Night Football, and you are a massive lads fan. So it's Dave Jones. And I've done that twice now. I've, I screwed up Haley Walker. I gave up his name. I almost did it again. So hi, Dave. Thanks for coming. Hi, Connor. It's good to be here. Yeah, you've been, how long have we been trying to get you on? Uh, a wee while. But in truth, I mean, this is the first time I've been in the Northeast since May. So it has been a while and um, I'd, I'd promised to come and, and speak to you guys when I came to a game, but the reality is it's, it's really hard for me yeah. to get to Sunland Games now and I'm working every weekend. Just so happened I was up here for a couple of days, so we managed to um, align the stars and here I am. The long transfer yeah. saga, yeah. some would say. Jim White would be with his yellow tie. Absolutely. Talking yeah. about how long this one's taken. So I just want to see you know, where this show ranks in your career and life disappearance right now uh well you mentioned the company magazine so that's probably number one yeah and i would have this probably as number two solid just behind that yeah Yeah. what would be number three um dentists last week was good solid yeah uh (laughs) dentists are expensive to be fair this won't cost you a penny they're even more expensive in london let me tell you (laughs) yeah you should wait till this week (laughs) every time you come to the dentist you can do the show that'd be perfect (laughs) that would tick many boxes yeah yeah. and if you got like your teeth whitened or something then we'll put a video are you saying i need my teeth whitened i'm not (laughs) that's not a good start you've been been a journalist (laughs) so before we get properly cracking i just want to know a bit about the man that is dave jones so you've got in my opinion the best job in football certainly one of them so first things first where did you grow up um, I grew up just down the road. Um, I grew up in a, a little village called Great Ayton, which is just south of Middlesbrough. So, you know, cards on the table. I'm not a Sunderland guy. Um, my association with this city started through the football club when I was eight years old. Um, the, the longer story is I was born in Shrewsbury. My dad played cricket with a guy called Alan Durban in Shrewsbury. And we moved up here for his job in 1976. And um, Alan came up here in 19, I don't know, 79, 80. And um, there was a point when it was obvious that my for my dad, that his two sons really wanted to go and watch football. I think I was eight years old. My brother was 10. 
and he got in touch with Alan and they rekindled a friendship. They played cricket together up here as well. Alan started playing with my dad's team and then um, it became a regular thing that we would go and watch matches at Sunderland and you know I didn't have an ordinary introduction to watching football mine was sitting in the manager's office before a game um the other the opposing manager would come in I think the very first game was Laurie McMenemy it was Southampton I think in 1982 and then I would go down to the dressing rooms and have a wander around Uh, I would sit in the director's box and watch my football and, and I thought that was how people watch football generally so it was a rude awakening um about two years on from there when Alan was sacked and I, I remember finding out I was ill of school I was in bed and I had this this babysitter called George who was a Middlesbrough fan as most people are where I live or where I grew up and he came in with a big beaming smile on his face and I thought he was bringing me something you know like a nice treat or something I've just seen on Teletext Alan Durbin's been sacked and he couldn't be more pleased. And I was like, my life is over. That's how it felt. I was absolutely devastated. I was in tears. And um, I've, I've, I've started telling you another story when you asked me actually where I grew up. But but the, the two things are related. So, yeah, I grew up in North Yorkshire. A lot of my family is still there around Great Ayton, Stokesy, these villages people might have heard of. Um, it's about 45 minutes down the road from here. And, um, yeah, that, that was my upbringing until I was about 18 and, and fled the nest. The best kept secret up here, then little villages that you find quiet still, not being. Do you know it's it's an amazing place, and I always say it. I, I love coming back, and I should get back more often, but it is hard. And this morning I was up on on the North Yorkshire Moors at nine o'clock in the morning, and it was absolutely fantastic. You know, it's life affirming stuff, especially on a day like today when the sun is shining and there's nobody around. I ran for for seven miles, and I think I must have seen ten cars come past me in that time. Uh, it's just magical. So you still got family that live in the northeast? Are they yes, all- so my mum's up here. My my brother's still up here with his family. Uh, my brother's still a season ticket holder at Sunderland. Um, he brings now his his son, my nephew, and it's really weird because for the first, I suppose, five years of of his time supporting Sunderland, he's seen the team win like three times in a season, maybe four at home, and uh, now he doesn't know quite what to make of it. Yeah, <laughs> we actually winning. It's funny. I've got a nephew who's. Sunderland fan and he's had a ticket since I think Moyes took over it's been horrible two years it's always getting really never thinks he just thinks that Sunderland are just losers and it's interesting because the generation of Sunderland fans now certainly kids might might have lost them unless you can claw them back now hopefully it's not too late yeah you know they'll see that something good is happening and and hopefully we are we're just at the start of an upward curve that can carry on for for many a year but just to go back yeah I mean so I mean, I went off to college in Cheltenham uh, at 18 and my dad would send me clippings every week from the Sunland Echo or the um, the Chronicle or wherever it was because he lived in Newcastle for a time. And um, that would be the way that I would keep in touch with the news. I would get a, a big envelope every week, which would, you know, that was, this is pre-internet stuff. Um, my brother would send me a Love Supreme whenever he went to a, a home game. And that was how I uh, kept in touch with with my beloved team. Are you family, Sunderland fans? Well, they are now. Yeah, my, my dad grew up a Northampton fan. So the season that, that we were last at this level, Northampton were in the same league. So the away game that I went to was Northampton. And the, I think I'm right in saying that the day that Sunderland got promoted back um, to the second division or, or first division or whatever it was then, um, was against Northampton Town. It was a bank holiday Monday. And I think there was probably 28,000 there. 
this is at Roker Park, yeah. of course. And uh, I was there as well. And that was, that was a really special day. So what's your first memory of watching? Well, football and she put Sunderland as well. Is that the same? Do you know what? In terms of football, the, the memories are, are not very strong. Uh, I can remember certain players and, and characters such as in the early days, Ali McCoist, um, who would it have been? Frank Worthington, people like that. Um, but my my strong memories, my binding memories are of the crowd. You know, I grew up in a, a really quiet little village and had never been around this many people before. And then suddenly I was with a crowd of 20,000 people who spoke differently. Uh, I learned to see things like garbage <laughs> and uh, how we are and hard lanes and all these things. Um, and whenever I played football, I would say man at the end of everything I said, just because that's what people did at Sunderland. Um, but it was just the passion of the people and the noise and the roar um, that really you, f- you felt it inside, you felt it in your spirit. And they're the strongest memories of, of for me looking back. And then I suppose my conscience started to grow into w- in terms of what I was watching. I was always a big stats person and I still am now. And I would, you know, look at the programs from, from front to back. And then heroes would be people like Gary Rowell, uh, who meant um, a lot to me at that stage, and, and Colin West. Um, I remember a time when Gary Rowell was introduced to me i mean he didn't know who i was i was just a, a, one of one of the manager's friend's sons and i remember he um i think he had a, his arm in a, in a pot at the time and he leant on my arm he said i'll tell you what son let me lend um lean on your arm while i sign your autograph on your program i didn't wash my arm for days <laughs> and i remember telling him that story i went up to him at selhurst park uh when he was covering a game probably with Cravers, um many years ago and told him this story and he was just looking at me like, who is this guy, this weirdo? (laughs) I've subsequently had some nice times with Gary Rowell, including one unforgettable night out in London with Crabbers, with my brother, when we ended up in in some nightclub and drinking champagne. And me and my brother just looking at each other thinking, what's going on here? How did we get in this situation? This is weird. So how did you know Crabbers? Probably just through association and... I think that was the early days of my time at Sky. I would be here, there and everywhere working as a reporter. Um, I was a pitch side reporter for a few years as well. And you see, you start to see the same faces and some would be friendlier than, than others. And certainly Crabbers was one of the, the friendlier ones. And we started to, to chat a bit at games and then you know, chat socially and, and go out for drinks and stuff socially. And he was up in the Northwest and there was a couple of times when I went up there with Sky and we'd, we'd meet for dinner before a game or something like that. Um, he's a great lad, great lad. Uh, who was your which player sorry was your hero growing up got to pick one so it, well I've got to pick one I've got to pick one well I could pick one from each era okay go on so Gary Rowe would be the first one uh, the next one would be Marco uh, and again the, probably the last game I went to I bumped into Marco and just having a lovely chat with him a normal chat and then you, you walk away and think he cracky if he wasn't playing in the game I didn't want to go to the game yeah you know for a time because I just felt he was the team he was of course the the spark that helped us got promoted again and and, and drove us on as a team but he was just immense as a center forward for Sunderland and then uh super kev you know um and he's still my hero I, I remember I would I would create situations when I was at Sky to go and speak to him <laughs> For some reason, he was once at Boreham Wood. I can't remember. He'd gone back there to watch a game or something because that's, of course, where he started. And I went there and tried to sort of get to know him a bit socially. And he was a bit, 
you know, he, he was doing well at that time. So he probably didn't want to, who's this kid asking yeah. him funny questions about his personal life. But I remember he had uh, double denim and I'd never experienced double denim before. And I went away thinking, that's cool. And I remember going and buying a denim shirt and wearing it, pairing it with my, my best jeans and going out and being absolutely ridiculed in London for my double denim look. And it was super Kev's fault. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. I mean, you're going to, Mimic anyone. <laughs> Mimic the best. So I think that's probably where my heroes stopped. I mean, there's people like Borley. Um, that era, that Super Kev era, yeah. they were all heroes to me. That was that was my favourite time to Which be a one fan. Do you think since then could have been but didn't? You know, I, I think about well, Darren Bent's the one that I was thinking about. But is there another one like that you can think of where you've like the nearly were in that category but didn't? Probably Jermaine. Yeah, yeah. Just as a, I mean, I lo- always love the goal scorers, as most people do. Um, although you know, Lee Catamol, th- there was a lot I loved about him as well, and his his sort of die hard. Um, I loved the way he threw himself into tackles. Um, he was a, he was a perfect player for Sunderland for a, for a lot of years, and you know, it arguably still is. So he he and Borley, that type of figure, you know, that real powerhouse yeah. of a figure. Um, I loved Lee Clark when he played for Sunderland. I thought he was just uh, on a different level to most of the midfield players I'd ever seen there. I was very sad the way that it ended for him. Um, but that team, Magic Johnson, you know, you'd, those two, you know, you'd go to games just thinking, not were you going to win, but how many you, you were going to win by. And the amount of chances they used to, to miss Um you know, we win games regularly, four, five, six, seven. Um, and then going back into the Premier League with that, with that confidence thinking, we can play, any, we can take anybody on. And we did, you know, all the big boys, we took them on. They didn't want to play us. Um, th- there was that period for a couple of years under Reedy where, for me, it, it didn't get any better. Do you th- I, when I watched Leicester in the Premier League a couple of years ago, I thought to myself, that could have been Sunderland in 2000 and do you think that's me living in a cuckoo land or do you think that there is because there was a point we were you know second third in that league do you think i'm wrong in thinking that or do you think it could have been i'm not sure i'm not sure i ever thought in that season i ever thought we could do that but do you think a leicester fan did Uh, probably not I, i get your point on that but i was probably a little bit more of a level playing field in 2000 than it is was in in 2016 when Leicester did it. So in in many ways, their story was even more remarkable, but they did have a billionaire owner. Um, I think the problem for Sunderland occurred when we actually, you know, strange as it sounds, started to spend big money. And that's when I think problems were created because we didn't spend it well. Uh, The wage bill goes up catastrophically and then you're trying to correct your errors Mm -hmm. the whole time. Um, So so the Peter Reedy era would be my favorite era and the only one that would come close to that would be the um, a couple of years under Roy Keane as well yeah do you got the 1985 and 1992 cup finals went to neither 85 I watched it um I was 11 years old I watched it uh, we were in a temporary house at that time because we were moving to a new house I watched it and cried um to explain nobody from my area supported Sunderland the only way I was ever going to get to games was through my dad. So it was always begging, 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 can we go, can we go? Um, when we got 
to a point where we were allowed to go to Sunderland on the train, it started to change a little bit. And we went to more games through the sort of the Marco era, Kieran Brady and all that sort of stuff. Um, 92 is a, is a <laughs> more convoluted story because I did get a ticket, but my brother didn't. And I had no means of getting to that game by myself. I did not yeah. know anyone. I didn't know anyone else who's a Sunderland fan. I literally didn't. But I'd queued up through the night at Roker Park, three o'clock in the morning or whatever it was, to get a semi-final ticket. And um, so we all went to the semi-final at Hillsborough. And then I don't know if you remember, but they had they had coupons then, and you had to go through the right. Are you at Jesus? I was born ninety four. Oh my god! I apologize. <laughs> Jeez, I, I feel like to do that. You weren't born. Oh my god! I've Gordon Armstrong on. He's talking about things. Like, I was born then. Yeah. Oh, that was another special game when when he scored in the quarterfinal. That was amazing, and I wasn't there. I watched that. That was on Sky. That game. Um, but I can still remember the 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 corner and and his header. Oh my word the noise at Roker Park that night that came through the TV screen, never mind actually being there. Um, so yeah, we queued through the night to get tickets. And then for the final, they issued a, in the program that it was, you had to go through the right turnstiles and then get the right um, number or letter coupon. And I remember I went through the under 16 turnstile as you did for, to pay three quid. And my brother and um, another lad went through the other turnstile and they didn't get tickets. And I did um in the in the sort of lottery so uh, i'm afraid uh, i had to pass my ticket on to somebody else didn't go to the playoff final either i was um working in derbyshire at the time i think it was the first time i saw Sunderland at wembley was against man city in the league cup final and you went with a bit of trepidation to that game thinking what what's the score going to be but for me it was the in a way of course we could have won but you know i don't think anyone really expected us to beat city but when barini scored and we got to half time in the lead that was it done yeah. i could have happily left at that point thank you i've had my moment you know i've got my team back or it felt like that that day the noise of the, the sunland fans made the weekend they had in london you know that was it it was um yeah going it felt like i was going back to my roots a little bit were you working no, no. So you were you in the? I was I was sitting um, about ten seats from Peter Reed. Oh, yeah. Who was he supporting? I think he was supporting Sunderland. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that was probably. Do you know? I've spoken to him many, many times since. He has so much affection for for this for this club, and for his time here. And uh, people of my generation would would say that he is the best manager that Sunderland's ever had. You know, there was obviously times under Roy Keane when we did well. Um, but consistently for those few years and it was really sad the way he got driven out of the club I have to say yeah I think it just did soured hadn't it the yeah. whole thing just yeah you possibly should have went the summer when they finished 17th in were you born then yeah I was all right I can okay. remember all that I started going to games when I was about four I, mean, I, can, <laughs> I can pretty much from 1999 remember everything <laughs> well apparently my first Sunderland game was the same Sunderland first game of Jonathan Wilson it was someone you should definitely get in here he's a brilliant writer um, brilliant author and you know the ultimate Sunderland anorak, so you should definitely get him in here. I, th- yeah. I think he went to this, the first game that I did as well. Two legends, same well, game. one and a half. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, things that are happening at the club right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first off, you were a non-executive director at Oxford, but you are no longer. Director. I am no longer. Yeah, but yeah. You, what did 
what did that involve? For somebody like me who doesn't know what a non-executive director um, is. I was introduced to someone who wanted to buy a football club and was told they were halfway to doing so. And then I was introduced to this person again and I ended up comparing a couple of functions for this guy. And the second one, I noticed that I was sitting next to him at the, at the dinner and he was asking me loads of questions about football and running football clubs. At that time, I was working quite closely with the Football League. I was going to their conference and hosting their conference um, in Portugal every summer. They sent me to uh, the States, the Football League did, to to interview Dan Rooney about the Rooney Rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was doing a program at Sky called the Footballers Football Show, which I remember that. was was a, a so we did a lot of stuff. Of, isn't on anymore. It's a long story, but we we did a lot of stuff around administration and different different facets of football, which wasn't just about you know kicking the ball in the net. It was was scouting Jordan and recruitment and whatever. Yeah, and, and it, do you know what? It stimulated me, and I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed finding out about the the, the bigger picture of football, and it was something I was very interested in, and. I didn't realize that these meetings I was having with this guy were actually a series of interviews in effect. And I got to the August, I think, and he just got announced as, as buying Oxford United and, and said to me, gave me a call, said, will you come and see me at Oxford? So I went up and I had a, a, a chat with, with the guy that introduced me to him and he says he wants to offer you a job. So this time I was working on Saturday night football at Sky just one game a week and it wasn't a great work you know a huge workload as, as well as doing the football football show or, or whatever else on, on the side during the week and I had time in my schedules to do something else and a, a lot of people in my position are spending a lot of time hosting functions or doing media training whatever it is they do other other working for other broadcasters or writing columns and I wasn't doing any of that stuff really uh, it didn't really float my boat to be honest all that other stuff um, I wanted to work and um so I, when I got this offer, I, th- I thought, absolutely, I'll do it. I, I checked with Sky. They were happy for me to do it. And effectively, it meant that um, I was advising on everything to do with how to run a football club. For some of it, I was qualified. For some of it, I absolutely wasn't. Um, but you pick up things along the way. I was contributing in, in board meetings to various things. Uh, the, the board changed shape quite quickly in the, in the time that I was there. But the first thing that I was asked to do by the chairman was to talk to him about the manager. I think I went in probably February in the end. and Michael Appleton was the manager and they were struggling. They were struggling. He was trying to play football a certain way. The fans weren't having it. One of the things that I'd spoken about with Daryl Eels, the, the chairman of Oxford, was... Uh, what happens if you go on a, a bad run as a, a football manager? Do you change him? Do you stick with him? Do you find him better resources? And we we were sort of aligned on the fact that um, you've got to support him. If he was the right guy in the first place, you've got to find ways to support him. As long as fundamentally you still believe in that person. And, and Daryl did. And for me, my first job really was just to remind him of all that stuff and to basically say have we got enough to get through this season uh, and then kick on and that was the feeling so I got involved in recruitment got involved in selling players um, I had a key role the sale of Kamar Roof to Leeds Callum O'Dowd to Bristol City Marvin Johnson to Middlesbrough for a combined seven and a half million quid I think um, and then got involved in recruitment not for me to say I think you should sign him or him because I, yeah. you know, I, I know as much about football as the next guy in that sense. Um, but really to make sure they're going through the right processes. Have you watched this guy enough? 
what do you know about him? What does stats say about him? Have you spoken to people at the football club that he's with and blah, blah. And also just helping Michael, the manager, um, find the right balance in his squad, challenge him because I didn't feel at times he was being challenged enough. I felt he he was too powerful at the football club. And I don't think that's healthy for any football club. Um, the only thing that changed was, uh, and I'd probably still be at Oxford now, if, if Daryl Eels was still there, but he sold the club to a, a Thai group. And <laughs> I mean, there is a, there's a much longer story here, but essentially we're in the process of appointing a new manager because when Michael left, we appointed Pep Clotet and, and I could I could speak for two or three hours about why we ended up with Pep Clotet as our manager. I don't suspect we've got the time now, but it didn't work out for us. So we were looking for a new manager and we were well down the road to appointing Craig Bellamy, which was, um, he was my selection. And at the 11th hour, the takeover, which had been on the back burner for the best part of six months, went through and the new guy didn't want Craig Bellamy. He started talking to me about Patrick Clivert, about Robert Perez, um, others people from, from Germany who I had to Google. And I just didn't feel that this was probably going in the right direction for me. And uh, I felt that if, if I was going to be working for a football club, I would need to be with, with a team of people who actually listened to what I said, or at least took some, took some, um, some of my recommendations on board so I felt at that time it was probably best that we we parted ways so I walked away would you do it again absolutely I would yeah would you get more involved I mean say if theoretically this summer something's getting taken over as there's rumors of this that and the other if somebody approached you and said we would love for you to you know help us with that was that be that kind of thing be right up your street I would do it for nothing only for Sunderland yeah no absolutely <laughs> yeah I mean Sunderland um, it would it would give me no greater pleasure than to to work for Sunderland and feel like I was giving something back I think I, I've learned lots of things in my time at Oxford I had a disadvantage in the fact that I wasn't an Oxford fan so people like for example Charlie Methven probably saw saw me as an outsider and wondered why I was getting to make decisions about his football club that he wasn't getting to make um now I'm in a situation where I see Oxford fans running Sunderland and I'm thinking, hang on a minute, have they got the club's best interests at heart here? What's their motivation? Why are they taking Sunderland? What they're going to do with the football club and how long is this going to last? Um, but you learn actually that when you're in that situation, you, you know, you live and breathe it. You absolutely, it, it takes over your life. You know, you, you've got Sunderland there and then you've got Oxford United there, but with Oxford United, I know all these players, I know their families, I know their wages, I know how what their wages mean to them, I know how important their bonuses are, um, I know emotionally things about them that perhaps they don't realise that I do. I want nothing more for, the, for these guys to be happy uh, and, and see the smiles on everyone's faces around the football club, around the city. Um, and in, in, a, in, a, in a way, you become an Uber fan when you're in that situation as a director. So at that time, if, if someone were playing Oxford, I, I, I wouldn't hesitate to say that I, I would want Oxford to win because Sunderland for me had drifted so yeah. far the wrong way with a bunch of people playing for them that I don't think gave two hoots about the football club being run by people at the very top level who didn't give two hoots about the football club. Um, so I, I see in the guys now people who are, have developed a passion for it and, you know, listening to Stuart Donald speak to you a couple of days ago, 
you can't fail to be impressed by him. I think he's a fantastic guy. I've, I've met him obviously um, as in my time at Oxford. And let me tell you a couple of things about Stuart. We, we had this um, uh, community night where we were trying to raise funds for the um, community side of the football club, the academy, blah, blah, blah. We arranged it around Stuart's diary because we knew if we could get him there, he would be spending money at the auction. And so it proved he was bidding outrageously for things that were nowhere near that value because he was quite happy to, to pump money into Oxford United because he cared about it that much. We, we had a friendly down at Eastleigh and I went down there and, and met Stuart there as well um, and saw what he was trying to do there. The one thing that really stood out for me from, from your chat with him was the way that he talked about Eastleigh and the mistakes that he made there the overspend, the, the culture that he created in the same way that Ellis Short had created at Sunderland. And I thought that was absolutely fantastic because it takes a big man, a proper man to admit to his mistakes and to learn from them as well. Uh, and that more than anything resonated on that, that chat you had with Stuart and told me that Sunderland are in safe hands. It comes across to me, is to me, when we first had him in, obviously from my perspective, you'll have the same thing. You're excited about the interview and all that. Then afterwards, when you reflect on it, I was like, Stuart is just a big football fan. And it came across to me that he just loves football that much. When he was telling us about the World Cup, he, went, he took his kids to the World Cup this summer for the England semi-final. I could see how excited he was talking about it. And I was like, this guy, whether he does well or not, has 100% got his heart in the right place. And that is the impression I've had from him from day one. I don't think he can believe they can believe that they have managed to do what they've done, pick up Sunderland, you know, effectively on the bargain basement. Yeah. And when you get here, you don't have to look around to see what you've got, especially when you're winning games and you see the crowds coming back. I mean, they have, in some ways they've hit the jackpot and I think they know that. You mentioned Charlie Methvin before. Um, I presume you must have had a relationship with him. What, what was that like? Um, Charlie was interesting because I think he'd been involved in trying to buy the club at the same time as Daryl Eels had tried to and buy Stuart it. Stuart tried to buy it as well, didn't he? Yes. Um, so I, I knew knew them by association. I knew Charlie more because he would come in the director's box before games. My son would play with his kids um, uh, games. We'd have the odd conversation, but um, quite often Charlie would be with his group. And to be honest, I, the other thing that, that struck me about what Stuart said was was he didn't like the the uh, the director sort of you know that situation before a game when you're in the boardroom and all that. I don't like that either. That wasn't for me. I would rather much rather be on the terraces watching my football, going to the King's Arms for a pint beforehand, yeah. and, and coming down and watching the game in the stands. Um, so I didn't really enjoy that process too much. I was felt I was a little bit on guard. I felt like people were probably watching me a little bit. Um, I had to watch every word that I said because things might be misconstrued. Um, Charlie was on a, a, a regular contributor to a forum that yeah, was that had quite a big voice, yeah. and I think very different to. I mean, totally different football clubs. They couldn't be more different in many senses. Uh, you know, Oxford's a club with big aspirations, but it's, it's never going to be Sunderland. And there's never going to be that fan base there. You're never going to get 40,000 people coming to a, an Oxford game, uh, unless it's at Wembley, which, they, <laughs> which in truth they did go down to. There just isn't, it's just not a football city in that sense. But um, there is a, a quite a big group of people that, that have a, a lot to say about the football club 
and are very intelligent and will put their views online and people will listen to those views and, and a lot will come back at the, the board. And I actually think that's quite a healthy thing. It's probably not once you're in, in that situation because everyone needs an opposition. Everyone needs to be held to account. Uh, that's the only thing I would say about Sunland right now is, is it's great and it's all going really well, but also there needs to be a situation where these guys are held to account and they would want that too. To, to operate to the to the best of their ability so charlie was one of those um i didn't have a lot to say to him on, on a on a daily basis didn't know him that well i think he he may have taken an exception to a couple of decisions i made at the time um i don't think he approved of the pep clotet appointment but as i say there's a there's a bigger story to that um and, and hand hands up I, w- I would say that we got that wrong but in different circumstances it might have worked um, those circumstances didn't play out, unfortunately. Um, so I don't really know Charlie that well. Uh, I messaged him to say, I think he's doing a fabulous job. Uh, and he got straight back to me. They've invited me to come to a game at some point. Um, and I will endeavour to do that. Yeah. So, Stuart, you know, obviously, well as quite well, would you say? No. No. No, not not quite well. Uh, I know I know. we have mutual friends, Um I've spoken to more that I had a lot of contact with in the summer when I thought something might be happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought there might be a role for me somewhere. Um, and I, I, what I tried to do in the summer was, was through this mutual acquaintance, just point them in the, in the right direction on a couple of things around manager, um, around people who were at the football club and thankfully still are at the football club. Um, and, and who knows whether those messages actually got back or, or were listened to or not I don't yeah. know uh, but it seems to me from the outside looking in that they've got most of the big decisions spot on Were you surprised when they emerged as the takeover group? I nearly fell off my chair Really? Yeah <laughs> Well I could not have possibly imagined that I could not have possibly I knew Charlie had ambitions to to, to be around um football uh, and particularly Oxford but I, I couldn't have imagined that but as I say I think they were in the right place at the right time um, when the Ellis Short scenario started to unfold um, and yeah I mean why why wouldn't you take that opportunity when once that presented itself and another somebody else who was linked to Oxford and obviously it's on the now once a Tory I think he was mooted as a potential investor at Oxford at some point. He ever had any dealings? I never met Wan. Um, He wanted to buy the club. He wanted to buy Oxford United. Uh, He was introduced by Charlie, I think. Um, Charlie's obviously got a a deeper relationship with him. But I don't know for what reason it didn't happen. A lot of the decisions were taken autocratically, in truth, um, and were presented to us as a board as to this is why this is happening, this is why this is happening. And that happens generally when you've got one person ownership. Um, so I don't know why that didn't get off the ground. I don't know. Uh, you know, it was interesting when, when it was presented as this guy's related to someone who's related to Monaco and there could be this happening and that happening and, and then you start your ears start to prick up. But um, we haven't seen any of that yet at Sunderland, and, but it'll be exciting if, if any of that does come through. Yeah, but they've got to make sure they don't, what happened last time doesn't happen again. You know, I would hate for to do the same thing, get in the Premier League, and then them spend silly money on players that ruin the good work. Like what happened with Roy Keane in two thousand eight when they brought in. Pat it's Gale it's the hardest thing. It, it, yeah, but it is the hardest thing because you you've 
and you see it now. I mean, obviously, I work very closely in the Premier League now, and you see the clubs that get promoted. And and what what have Fulham done? They spent hundred million quid, and they've they've barely touched the surface in terms of breaking through in the Premier League. And then there are other clubs like Bournemouth and Watford who've done it more gradually. But both of those have got extraordinary scouting structures in place. You know, global scouting structures. Certainly in Watford's case. Um, you can't see them ever getting relegated, but that's more to do with their management behind the scenes than it is yeah. the guy who's actually standing on the sidelines being the coach. And that, that's, for me, that's the gloss on it. If you get a good one of those, and that's an absolute bonus. Um, I, I don't know what the answer is for Sunderland, but it's not something you have to worry about just yet. But I would, I would, like, I would like to think this is a very brief spell in the uh, League One. And I don't see any reason why a club of this stature could not go and make an instant impact on the championship. Yeah. Uh, we appreciated the fact that you gave us some support on Twitter after listening on Monday, but what have you made of the transparency the owners are given doing podcasts, doing, you know, all talkings with fans, radio phone I mean, what do you make of that? It's it's almost alien. I don't think there's anyone <laughs> that's had it before. I think it's something that happens a lot lower down the ladder. Um, well, I suppose we are low down the ladder, aren't we, in League One now? But certainly it's something we try to do at Oxford. We try to get out and speak to as many people as possible. Um, Daryl Eels was going on radio and, and phone-ins and, and this and that. The problem is, it's fine when you're winning games. That's what I would say. And if you're starting and you set your bar there, it's quite hard to come down from that. Uh, hopefully you won't speak to Stuart again for a while. Maybe six months, I heard you say, after <laughs> after January, wasn't it? I think it's really hard to maintain that level of contact with fans because ultimately you're going to have to make some decisions they're not going to agree with and you can't, having keep justifying yourself is quite difficult. Um, I think it was absolutely the right thing to do. They, you know, In terms of their PR approach, I think it's been nothing short of sensational. But that's, this is coming after a guy that didn't have any contact with fans, didn't want to have any contact with fans, wouldn't explain his decisions or his reasoning on anything Um so there was going to be a natural uplift, I think, anyway. And they have moved to reassure fans about what they're doing. And I think it's absolutely the right approach. And, and there is a lot to do in the short term, which they've, they've got right near the first 100 days of management, changing the seats and all that stuff. And, and PR being one of those, improving that, getting that reconnect with fans. You, you can't argue that they haven't pulled that off um, in any way but perfectly really I just think it's really hard to sustain that and, and if Stuart's going to carry on going watching games on the terraces then again great but if you lose four on the bounce uh, or or even worse if if it came to um, next season and we're we're floating around in the wrong end of the table then I think that's really hard to, to keep doing Do you think other clubs or pr- prospective future owners of clubs would look at the model that they've done and then you know talking to fans this directly and try and replicate it because I'm thinking about in general I can't think of many football clubs maybe the Peterborough owner none of the others are that you know as in contact with the fans as what Stuart and I know Dara I know Dara quite well um and I think again he he made himself a bit too accessible and then you see him go on a, a Twitter tirade against some fan who doesn't agree with the ticket pricing or yeah. he signed a dud centre forward or whatever it is and it becomes quite tricky for him I don't think it's the model I think Stuart is a unique character there are not I think it's an individual thing with him I don't think there are many people that can pull it off but I think what you're seeing is that he's he's a normal guy um and he wants to be seen as a normal guy what have you made of the start of the season? We'll talk 
proper football now. Start okay. of the season. What are you made of the first what, 15 games? Uh, well, it's been great. I can't admit to have seen too many of the games. I've seen the ones that are on TV and I get um, reports from my brother who, who goes to the games. Um, I don't think we could have wished for any more, certainly at this stage, when you see that level of turnover. I'm, I, you know, I think of it as a fan, but I also think of it as a with a director hat on too. And if, if we'd been in that situation, how, how pleased we'd be with where we are now, I'd, I'd be absolutely over the moon because I think I don't see... I'd have zero doubt that we'll get promoted this year, sitting here now. Zero doubt. Because I don't think the league is any way as strong as it was last year, for one. I don't think there are the big guns in the league this year that they were last year well if they they are they're us yeah there's one of the Portsmouth really yeah but even but even I wouldn't put them on anywhere near the same no, level no, that, but that they're we the are the one in the league I look at and I go yeah, yeah. You know they should be in league one either uh, I suppose I, looking from the outside I thought we might do a little bit more in the summer in terms of bringing players in I was particularly worried about our strength up front um, and then when Charlie got injured I suppose that um, that sort of anxiety deepened on that, but the goals have been coming from everywhere, which is great. Um, and I, you know, I don't think we've we could have argued had we not won all these games on this run, because there have been some interesting first half performances, particularly some I think poor performances. Um, it's trust me, some very poor performances. But, but it's building momentum start. and it's yeah. building belief. And and now these lads, you'll see you'll see them step up ten percent because they they'll go into the pitch thinking they're going to win games as opposed to are we going to win games? Um, they've got some big characters in there. Uh, so I've I've got nothing but optimism right now. Jack Ross, what do you mean of him so far? I like him. I've not met him actually. Um, he was one of the names that was thrown at us at Oxford. Um, I think this must have been the start of this year when we sacked Pep Clotet. And it was an agent that I knew who was basically trying to get him south of the border. I couldn't believe how many managers from Scotland were trying to get south of the border. You know, most in the in the SPL were trying to get a job down here and were happy to to speak to League One clubs. Um, we were, we as I say, we were a long way down the road with Craig Bellamy, um, rightly or wrongly, at that time. So we didn't speak to Jack. Um, but I like what he's about. I, I, I like his intelligence. That's clear. Got a degree, which is nice. Yeah. I don't know why he's talking about the Scotland job. That surprised me. Yeah. I don't know if that was a question that was thrown at him. I don't know the context of that. Yeah, it was. I didn't actually know about it until I spoke to Nick Barnes, the BBC commentator. I'd, I just suggest, threw it out there. What was Jack Ross's future goals? And he said Scotland manager. But yeah, I was surprised by that because it, I don't know, makes us feel a little bit uneasy. I just, th- I just think if you're at that level of experience, you probably want to be worrying about this season and next season, not not being the, yeah. the manager of the national team. I, I suppose it does tell us that he is an ambitious guy, but I think I we knew that anyway. Question and what is your ultimate job? And he said the Scotland job. It's an easy one to knock away, that yeah. isn't it? My my immediate goal is to win on Saturday and get us promoted. True. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, interesting. We'll see how it plays out. Uh, I presume you haven't been to any games this season. No. Will you make any? Uh, I'd hope the Blackpool game was going to get ranged for this week, so I could have gone to it. Um, I, of course I will do. Yes, there'll be games near me that I can get to. Um, Oxford. I'll try and go there, and I've been invited already. It, uh, it depends where I'm going to be on the Sunday and my travelling and, and whatnot, uh, and trying to see my son at the same time um, and my w- darling wife. Um, I hasten to add. <laughs> <laughs> Which players from the current squad do you like the most? 
Well, I've got to say Chris McGuire, haven't I? Yeah, that's what I was waiting for. Um, the king. Yeah, <laughs> Mags is a funny one. I mean, you know I, him. I do know him. And I, I remember the first recruitment meeting is which, at Oxford in which his name was brought up. And there was a couple of players that we talked about. Uh, one was Wes Thomas and one was Chris McGuire. And Michael Appleton had worked with both of them. I can't remember where he'd worked with Chris. But we, we, we watched some video clips in the, um, in the recruitment meeting and that was they were that was mainly for us for them to introduce the player to us and say this is what we're talking about da da da. He's on these kind of wages. Can we can we get him to come here? He's not in the team at X. Yep. Yeah, let's let's if he's prepared to come and and because of Michael Appleton he was um, bring him down and he came down on loan and I don't think he knew what he'd come to. That was League Two, and uh, you know games like Hartley pulled away at that time. Um, he looked out of sorts. He looked sluggish. He was probably the player that Barry had last year, in truth, but probably even not as good as that because uh, his fitness wasn't great at the time. But Michael was determined to to pursue it, and and um, when it got round to the summer and he was available, Michael wanted to do it, and he the board backed him, backed his backed his belief in the player really, and he very quickly became a fan's favourite when he was fit, when we were in League One, which suited him better. Um, and he went from strength to strength, really. You know, I, I, when when Sunderland signed him in the summer, I, I put a tweet out along the lines of, um, this is a guy that will respond to the crowds. Because it was always clear that in the big games, in the games that are on TV, Magsy would be running up and down, up and down, um, throwing himself into tackles at one end and then wanting to be on every free kick and, and corner at the other end and winding up opposition fans as as much as he could and and just being the center of the attention really he was he was someone i always liked off the pitch i have to say that he was a real character um i had dinner with him quite early on uh with it when we went went out with a team and sat with him and got to know him a little bit and then we'd always chat when i was at the training ground we'd always chat he'd want to talk about other football things he's interested in football he wanted to ask me about premier league stuff or um, Celtic or, or whatever it was um, just a nice guy um, who I think has, has found a natural natural home here and he is absolutely reveling I know in, in the adoration that he's getting at the moment and that is why you're seeing performances like we are and, and there are not many players at this level will try the things that, that a it's confident Chris Maguire does I mean the, the quality of that strike and I was talking about this with my brother. You know, we—if you think back to the Premier League days at Sunderland, how many players would have attempted that, could have attempted that, and executed it? Not many like that. You know, you're talking on one hand, really. He's got the talent. He's absolutely got the talent. Um, and I think the the good thing about being at Sunderland as opposed to at Oxford, and we could have given him a new contract, and we didn't uh, at Oxford, and he went off to Bury. The the um, the thing about him here is that he will be in a dressing room with bigger characters than him that will keep him in the right place. People like Catamol. Exactly like Catamol. You know, uh, he's not going to get away with too much. They'll keep him on the ground. They'll remind him of where he's come from and where they've come from. Um, and I think that will be a really good thing for him. You're around football people probably every day, certainly when you're at work. So it must have been interesting as a Sunderland fan when things are going badly wrong towards the end of us in the Premier League what do you think our reputation was like then you know and how is it the double relegation almost impacted it 
you know, with the people that you speak to? Um, Sunderland is always a big club. You know, when, when it comes up in conversations, people will talk about Sunderland in revered terms. And I have to say, they're probably grouped Sunderland and Newcastle in the same way. They've probably seen Newcastle as a bit, bit more successful because they've had longer stints in the Premier League, perhaps recently. Um, in, they've had, you know, going back to the entertainers of, of Newcastle, that was obviously a glory time for them, which Sunderland hasn't hit those sort of heights. Um, so I don't think double relegation has affected that at all. I saw on, on Twitter someone say, um, ask him why Sky hates Sunderland. And I, I guess that would probably be referring to the, the dark days of the Premier League where there were lots of cutaways of fans leaving the ground early and all that yeah, sort that of stuff. Common yeah. And I think probably the, the situation there is, is that people get a narrative in their head that this is a club that's in despair, that's dying, that the, the fans are, are voting with their feet. And so the directors, the TV directors going there are, are just sort of you know reaffirming that. Um, Sky are super excited about Sunderland being back as a football club you cannot get enough clubs who are heavily supported where 40,000 people turn up you know it would be a dream for Sky if Newcastle Sunderland Leeds United were in the Premier League Aston Villa as well because um, people buy into those stories the atmospheres they want to watch games where there are 40, 50,000 crowds. Um, so I don't think Sunderland's um, reputation has been dented at all. I think we're going through a process which you've seen other big clubs go through. Um, but when we come back, you know, Sky will be knocking on the door. The problem for fans will be when Sunderland get back into the championship is rearranging their diaries around games on a Friday night, Thursday night. Mm. Monday night, um, Saturday lunchtime, Saturday evening, Sunday lunchtime, that will happen, which which in League One is not such a big factor. Do you think the the reputation we had is in your players taking the, the piss, as Charlie Methvin put it, and you know the state of the club's finances, the stories that come out around the club, you know the amount of managers we've been in, do you think that's impacted our ability to bring players in and managing, managers in for that matter? Um, not at this level. But yes, higher up the ladder, I think so. I think the club has had a reputation. You know, talking about uh, changing the, the, the reputation about Sunderland, I would say it's improving now. I think it did have a reputation for uh, a drinking culture. Most of those characters are gone. Not all of them, most of them. Um, I think people thought, I have to be careful what I say. People thought there were, there were players coming here for the wrong reasons. And, and that's pretty evident. I think they won't get away with that with this management, with, with Charlie and Stuart. They won't get away with that. The contracts will be given out for the right reasons, the right types of contracts. And um, in terms of getting players to come here, that's, that's going to be a problem. It just is. When you look around the Premier League, you look at what Newcastle are able to do, um, what Huddersfield are able to do with money. If, if you're not in London or Manchester or Liverpool, it, it is a struggle to attract players full stop, uh, which is why I really hope that the recruitment goes well over the next couple of years because then you can launch yourself into the Premier League with that springboard. I mean, look at Bournemouth. Yes, they've got loads of money, but they've got the same back four, essentially, that was in League One. And they've managed to create 
good things around them. Yeah, one or two every year. You've got to do that. You've got to keep testing yourself. One of your questions to to Stuart the other day was was about um, the January window and are you recruiting now for the championship? Absolutely, they will be. Absolutely, they will. That there is no point in signing players now that you think are just for League One, and there will be some players that are playing in that team now that won't be playing in the championship. You have to be ruthless about it. You have to keep that turnover going. But in an ideal world, you get your base and then you just add two or three every summer. Players in that team is obviously all goes well and they get in the Premier League. I look at like a Jack Baldwin. He could be a Premier League player with the right coaching. You know, if he grows with the club, and there is a few in there that I think they could Madger being an obvious one. Yeah. The hardest thing is then keeping them, isn't it? Yeah. Um, giving them reasons to stay at Sunderland with the right contracts. You hope they've got the right people talking to them because the easiest thing in the world is is for an agent to go, he's going to pay you 10 grand a week more. Uh, and then it it's becomes impossible. We saw that at Oxford. So what you don't do then is, is fight it, really. Um, if, 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 if you think it's too far gone, it's all about then trying to get the best price for people. You mentioned agents. Me and Stuart have had conversations about agents on here. What's your view of them? I mean, he says they're a necessary evil. <laughs> it's probably the exact phrase that I would use. And I went into Oxford United thinking all these things about we're not going to deal with agents and um, we, we will we will not use them. We, we won't let players get away with this and that. And then I think in the first window that I was there, we ended up paying an agent a, a considerable amount of money to help us sign a very good player who made the football club a lot of money um and it was you know it wasn't anything uh, that wasn't above board um and i it was explained to me all the reasons why we were doing this was because of xyz and they are as stuart says a necessary evil it's it's almost impossible to exist in football without them it's crazy isn't it you're just I just wonder why the owners aren't just to get, get together with the EFL. The well, Premier to be League. fair, I think Ellis Short did try that. You know, I think he was driving a lot at, at the, at the Premier League. financial fair play, didn't he, as well? Yeah, at the top level, he was trying to drive all that, probably because he was a bit worried about his profit margins. Uh, he wanted to bring down wages and possibly even have a wage cap. But um, for the moment, you need good agents on your side. And so saw that with Sam Aldice, didn't we? <laughs> he works through that. Uh, we talked a little bit there about Alice Short, but what did you make of Martin Bain? And I'll throw Alice Short in there as well. I met Martin a couple of times um, when we came to do games up here. Always seemed a nice bloke, quite professional in his manner. Um, I think he had an impossible job because I think he was was purely uh, answering to the beck and call of the owner who wasn't here and and, and wanted X Y Z done and expected it to be done now. I met Alice only once I think or maybe a couple of times but the, the the time I had a longest chat with him was on the eve of the Carling Cup final and I asked him then so what was that 2014 yeah. I asked him then if he was considering selling the club or would consider selling the club and he said to me have you ever tried to sell a Premier League football club David uh, at which point I was able to say I hadn't um, <laughs> it was clear to me then that he was looking for a way out I just wish it had been four years earlier, really. It's a shame. I think with Alice Short as well, my view on it was he invested and had his heart in the right place, but he just was not the right... He put the wrong people in charge. He just wasn't a football yeah, club. Yeah, I, th- a good football club I think um, if Niall was still here, 
then Ellis Short might still be here. We might still be in the Premier League. I think Niall was his moral compass and his football sense. And whether Niall um, knew the answers, he would find people that did if he didn't know the answers. So it was it was a sad day for Sunderland, I think, when, when Quinny left. I agree that his heart was in the right place, but we just got in this desperate scramble every year of, of trying to sign to... to to correct and alleviate mistakes. I don't think a lot of his managerial appointments were that bad. I mean, I was an advocate of doing something different. I'm talking about Gus Poyet. I felt that Sunderland had to try something different. And I suppose it became clear to me watching Poyet Sunderland teams that actually we were about blood and thunder. And that was probably going to suit us best um, at that level because we couldn't compete football-wise with with Manchester City, with you know half a dozen or, or more of the Premier League's teams. We had to... We had to be a bit Peter Reid. We had to be a bit blood and thunder. And that's what the fans were going to respond to. Were you surprised that things went so badly for David Moyes? I actually read your interview with Roker Report from two years ago when we first appointed David Moyes. What did I say? Good appointment. <laughs> As did. I said the same thing. So, you know, why do you think it went badly for Moyes? I mean, do you think Moyes was just the wrong fit, even though he looked like he was going to be the perfect fit? David Moyes is a difficult one for me. I mean, someone I work with time time at Sky, he knows football very well. And there are you, you can't have a guy that that many people in football speak well of and for them all to be wrong. And these a lot of people that speak well of him are people that whose opinion I, I really respect and trust. Um, I'm not sure anyone could have done anything different at that time. You know, look at Simon Grayson and I think that was a good appointment. And how badly wrong that went as well. Um, Simon was someone I spoke to around the Oxford job last time as well. Um, it, it, it became a poison chalice. I think David Moyes would feel that he shouldn't have taken the job on, on reflection. And, if he, and having taken the job, he probably feels that he should have left the job of his own free will before Christmas. In truth. Where would we be now? We'd probably be in exactly the same situation because I, I think it was a, a sinking ship. Uh, we're going to jump now a little bit on your career in sports journalism. So at what point did you want to be a sports journalist? Probably forever. Yeah. Um, I got I got lucky when I was about 14. I'd, I'd signed up to do some work experience at Cleveland County Council because my dad worked there. And I was going to work in the PR office. Uh, unfortunately, there were strikes at the time, but it was turned out to be my fortune because it meant that they couldn't look after me. So they had to farm me out to various places. So they farmed me out to Tyne Tees, to TFM, the radio station, to, to BBC Radio Cleveland, uh, the Evening Gazette. And I got a little bit of a taster of, of all these incredible um, experiences that really helped to shape my view. And I found then that... I was able to contribute. It was a bit weird, really, because I was—I remember the Evening Gazette in particular. I was—I was given to this junior reporter, and he couldn't write this story. And I was fourteen, and I was saying, "Well, have you tried this? Have you thought about this?" And I think he was looking at me like, you know, pipe down, Sonny, <laughs> as I would with a work experience person. Um, so I did that experience, and then I think my idea was to be a news journalist. That's what I really wanted to do. I, I had experience later at the Journal. I had experience uh, at the Evening Chronicle. I went out to do some football interviews at that time. I went to see Kevin Keegan when he was the Newcastle manager. I went to see, uh, oh God, what's his name? The Sunderland manager at that time. 
Mick Buxton interviewed him and I thought this is quite fun this you know so that was in the back burner but then I, I went off to do my history degree I did a postgrad in journalism uh, I was very set then on on just getting a job in a, in a newspaper in a local newspaper and I got the first job that came up which was the Derbyshire Times in Chesterfield so I worked there for two years doing my journalist qualifications doing crime stuff murder stuff Tony Ben was our MP so that was quite a stimulating guy to be having debates with on a, on a regular basis um, and then by freak of nature Chesterfield found themselves in the FA Cup semi-finals in 97 and I was sort of drafted into the sports side to um to help out really the sports desk because everyone knew I was I was mad about football and ended up thinking this is much more fun than death knocks you know um it's stuff that I enjoyed doing it didn't feel like work I enjoyed the research behind it and then in 98 Sky Sports News was launched and there was a big advert in the Media Guardian which we all looked at on a Monday to see where the jobs were and it, it was they were recruiting for everything for reporters for sub-editors camera people and I applied and, and thought no more well I applied with a video I decided to couple a video together and I managed to get myself on a roof overlooking um, Chesterfield football ground and I, I went to Derbyshire County Cricket Club and interviewed the coach and just did those sort of things off my own bat um, sent that off to Sky and it must have been four months later probably I got a, a letter saying uh, you've made it to the interview stage come down and see us and I went down and met this guy and he sat down he'd played the video in front of me that I'd sent and, and told me that he'd liked it and and uh, this guy ended up be, being my boss for the next sort of 10 years um, the guy that, that launched Sky Sports News so so that was really the, the the day that I got that letter from Sky was the day that I decided I wanted to be a sports journalist but I was aware of Sky at the time. I'd, I'd watched, my dad had it and and was aware of the people that were on there. Um, I suppose that then I had aspirations of working in television and broadcasting. And and really, I, I suppose it's a story of, of right place, right time and right attitude all the way through, really. I've been there 20 years. I was, say, I was about to say, it must be 20 years. I was looking at, yeah, like sort of C, well, not CV, Wikipedia pages, stuff like that. And I was like, it must be about 20 years. Yeah, but I've never, you know, I've never really stood still in my time there. I was I was sub-editor. I was writing scripts to start with for six months and then the junior reporter left. And because I was the guy that at the end of my shift, which was 4 a.m. to 3 p.m. at that time, uh, whenever I finished a shift, I would volunteer to go out on a shoot, driving across London for an hour to interview some West Ham fanzine editor, I think was my first job. And then... Uh, it was it was obvious who was going to get that job when when the junior reporter left because I was the one who was the most experienced of the underlings I suppose um, and then I did that for maybe a year and started being a little bit more in front of camera and, and the way that Sky operates Sky Sports News is quite a separate entity or certainly was but you'd have the guys in Sky Sports the football teams the cricket teams all watching our output and I was then asked by the Sky Sports football team to go and do some pitch side interview stuff so I was working on England's under 16s I was working on women's football I did some very minor FA Cup matches um, some Johnson's paint matches and that sort of stuff and then they said well we want you to try and be a presenter so actually the, the way that happened was <laughs> Uh, I was working as a reporter in Sky Sports News on that day because my shifts were sort of interchanging between Sky Sports and Sports News at that time. And I was working as a reporter and they were they were trialing a presenter. And they said, will you come through and pretend to be an expert on cricket? Um, so I went through and sat in the studio and this guy was interviewing me. And then that night, I got a call at home saying, 
Um, slightly strange situation, but we didn't give the job to the other guy, but we'd like you to present Sports Centre tomorrow night. What? <laughs> so, you know, that's what I mean, right place, right time. So... I suppose I've got to hear how did you get your big break? Well, like that was that was it, really. And then, yeah, uh, there have been you, you do a little bit, but there have been other little breaks along the way. Um, I think a lot of people think that I only got my chance on the Premier League when Richard Keyes left. But I was working, I was working on the Football League with Peter Beagree for three years, and I was presenting that on a Saturday night. Fabulous grounding again, totally different skill being an outside broadcaster presenter to a studio presenter, where often you, you're reading autocue, and when you're out on the road, you just left to your own devices. Really, absolutely, it is. Absolutely, it is. I would hate the autocue. It's you know, it's a difficult thing. Uh, um, so Monday night football is that autocued? No, no. So what is Sky Sports News? Also, oh, the Sky Sports News. That yeah, you've got on yeah. the desk. Uh, uh, I've been to the BBC News one before, so it'll be the same thing. Like looking. At the yes, glass. exactly. Yeah. No. Monday Night Football is is uh, me talking off the top of my head. Sometimes with a pre prepared script which I've written. Um, sometimes I'm just spouting, which you can tell a lot of the time. Uh, so, so I'd been I'd been asked to to go to the, the the we've got two games on a Super Sunday. So I was doing stints from the early game. Richard Keys would throw to me. I'd do some team news. Da da da. I remember one game I did was was Tyne Derby. At Newcastle in the snow, Michael Bridges was with me. And then I was asked to do some Saturday games like Bolton against Blackburn Rovers, Reading against Sheffield United, things like that. So when um, Richard left, uh, I suppose I was in the right place at the right time. And, and with Ed Chamberlain... Um, who jumped onto horse racing. Who jumped onto horse racing again. So is, he, so is he a big football fan? I was horse racing his thing. You'd have to ask him that, but I, I mean, That's horse like, I just, I, I, horse I racing is his passion. No, no, horse racing is his passion. I would, I would say, yeah. um, but he's someone who's who's got a big interest in all sports. He's probably. a really good presenter. Yeah, he's good. He used to enjoy Ed Chamberlain. That's why I was surprised. Left, I was like, why would you? Yeah, this is the best job in the world you've got there. Yeah, talking to Gary Neville as it used to be then, before Jamie. I mean, when did Jamie Carragher start doing it? I think five or six years ago, before me. I think he retired. He retired the year before Liverpool nearly won the league, didn't they? Yes. So it must be 2013. He jumps yeah. out on the sky. Yeah. And Thierry Henry, he's he's not on Sky anymore. No. Yeah, he's got a job, hasn't he? Monaco. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I actually had a question about Thierry Henry somewhere in here at some point, but um, I'll get back to that. So I'm going to ask you: Is it the best job in the world? It is for someone who's passionate about sport, who loves football, who doesn't mind doing their research on football. Um, some. Sometimes people ask me about my history degree and what what sense that has got to do with anything. When I did my history degree, I don't know if you you would agree with this. You end up doing a lot of reading around your subject matter, and I think for a journalist, that's the perfect training because when you get a story, it's not just the story. You have to find out X, Y, and Z, why that happened, why, why, what, where, you know, and you end up reading around your subject, which is what I do every every week uh, with football. But it never gets boring to me because you, you're watching different teams, you're watching different players. Uh, I like the fact that I know a lot about my subject. Um, that's quite stimulating to me as well. And uh, I like working with these guys that I'm working with. You know, I, I find them inspiring and, and um, good fun to be around. Um, the only thing that doesn't make it perfect is the fact that I haven't got a button which I can press, which gets me from London to Manchester in five seconds. <laughs> if I had that, then it would be the perfect job. <laughs> Uh, if there was one thing you could change about the sports media industry, what would it be? Blimey. I know. Deep question. 
Whew, you stumped me there. It's not something I've ever really thought about, really. It's, it's something I might think about when I, I'm not working in the sports media industry anymore. Um, I suppose the, if I have bugbears, they would be related to social media. I don't like the way that we have a society that is judge and jury within 10 seconds. I don't like the way people tweet condolences one minute and the next minute are tweeting a joke. It feels very disingenuous to me. I don't like the way uh, people in the sports media feel they have to have an opinion on everything on social media. Um, I think there are a lot of problems around social media and Twitter particularly. Uh, I don't like the way people feel they can abuse you on, on social media without consequences. I admit that I've got a really nice job, get well paid for it, but it doesn't mean I should be abused for it. Right. I don't think. There's nothing worse than a Twitter troll. I get the occasional ones. I normally get them on appearance, is what I get. People pick on the fact that I'm maybe a bit podge and going bald, which is fine because I take it in my stride. But yeah. if you let it get to you, it can get to you. Yeah. I, it used to get to me. I have to say it doesn't anymore. Yeah. Um, so. And maybe that's a good thing because in the time that I've been on screen, um, when you start off, you are very sensitive to everything. You're You're worried about your performance. You're worried about how people are going to judge you. You're worried about getting everything absolutely right because you think if you don't, you're going to lose your job the next week. And that's poss possibly a little bit of the culture around television as well at, at the sort of highest level. You learn that you've just got to relax a bit. You've got to be yourself. You've not got to worry so much about what other people think. You've just got to do the job to what you think is the best of your ability. Uh, and I also want to ask you, There'll be a bit deeper. Yeah. But people if you listen to this, some of them might be aspiring sports journalists. Well, I thought it'd be worth asking if you had an advice for somebody who is whether or not they're 16 just finished or maybe they have just graduated, you know, if they wanted to get involved in this sector, what would your advice be? Um it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people want to make the jump from A to Z without the B C D E F G, you know how did you get to do your job? It's not an easy question to answer because I didn't suddenly just become a presenter. You've got to jump through so many hoops and work. For me, it was a case of working 15, 10 years, whatever it was. First, I get a lot of people asking me that, how do I get to be a presenter? Well, you've got to go and do something else first because you're not just going to be a presenter. I think you've got to make yourself different. If you are... Um, if you're writing to people, I think you should say, please, can you give me some advice? Because mm -hmm. you'd be amazed. I, I must get um, an email every day from someone asking me that question for advice. And I can't remember the last time someone said, please. Maybe that's a new thing. I don't know if the, the word is falling out of the language. I don't know. Always surprises me because common courtesy goes a long way. Um, be courteous. Have good manners. Um, be persistent. And, and try and get opportunities working for nothing. Don't be afraid to do that. Get your foot in the door at your local radio. Uh, for us, it was back in the day, local papers, but th 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 that is harder to come by. Would it be a fanzine if you want to get into sport? Yeah. Do something that separates you from the crowd um, and stick at it. 
the hardest thing is getting the first break i think in media and once you're in you're in it's a bit like that sort of society because then people can see you've had that experience but if you're going to someone and you're saying i've been writing for this fanzine for free for five years that's going to get you ahead of someone who's who's not been doing anything mm-hmm. um and make sure your spelling's correct as well <laughs> <laughs> to be fair I, I make horrendous spell mistakes when i shouldn't um Allegedly a qualifier. <laughs> we all make mistakes. Uh, I've got a few bits on Sunderland and Sky. So first bit, how much has your career impacted your ability to be just, quote unquote, a fan? Oh, it has. N- there's no doubt about that. Yeah. And I, I, that was one of the things for me when when I was thinking about a career choice, because I was so passionate about sport. Football and cricket are my big passions, and, and now it's golf. Um, and I was worried about my passions my interests being taken over by my work and how that would impact it went with it anyway but there's no doubt it has you know i've I've presented sunderland games i can think of key games like for example um arsenal away under dick advocate when it was a nil a draw and we survived uh the everton game the following season three nil lovely day it was fabulous and you know that was that was super to do but then you're doing defeats as well i was i think i was the pitch side reporter when peter reed lost at arsenal three nil and was sacked the next day and I had to push him in the interview and Howard Wilkinson was the manager when I had to interview him when we lost 4-0 at home on a, against Manchester City I think it was a Monday night or something like that a Tuesday night and I had to push him on that um, it does impact you it impacts your enjoyment a bit because you can't you can't enjoy those the big moments as much as the fans um, and you have to be tough on them when they're struggling and you, you have to sort of stand back. And I get lots of messages from people. How do you, how do you not smile about that? Or, or, you know, how could you not say this about the team? But you just, you just take on a, a professional head. You put your professional head on going into work and it doesn't really make any difference ultimately to me if I'm watching Sunderland or, or Wiccan Wanderers, you know, I'm, I'm delivering in my view, the same performance. And if anything, I'm just being a bit more critical about my own team, but it, it does, it does impact on you. So your if enjoyment. you were to retire tomorrow, mm-hmm. would you have a season ticket at Sunderland or? Be a hell of a, a journey from <laughs> <laughs> Southwest London. Um, my, to be honest with you, my, my love affair with Sunderland peaked in the nineties and early two thousands came back again under Roy Keane because the team had a swagger. Yeah. And it was Roy Keane. And I loved Roy. I, I absolutely loved Roy. I was in, um, I went on the preseason tour to, to Ireland. Four, seven. When we, when we went back to the Premier League and we were around the team and, and Quinny and, and the, the new directors, the Drummerville guys uh, in Cork and being in the same bar with them till, till the early hours. Crabbers was involved again, of course. Um, <laughs> And it felt then, we, I think the next day we signed Craig Gordon for 10 million quid or something, a, a record for a, for a goalkeeper. And it felt like the club had got its swagger back and, and we could take people on with Roy in our corner. So that was, um, that was a really special time as well. But I felt the drift. You know, I've been there with litter blowing around the pitch, fans leaving early, people calling for the manager's head three wins a season the occasional high at Stamford Bridge or at home to City or something like that and it, I'm really hoping now that this is sustainable I, I you know I've been calling for a long time I, I was writing a, a column for the Sun and Echo and I, I gave it up because I felt like I got nothing more to say about the team or the club you know we were just we were just going around on a on a treadmill um I was calling for the club to be relegated because I thought it would sort us out 
And I, I was trying to explain to people that my best years, it's, it's not about how high you finish. It's about the enjoyment you get as a fan. And you can see the Sunderland fans, how much they're enjoying it now. Yeah. That's what it's all about. They've got the love for the club back. And if this can keep going, and I'm pretty sure it's going to, um, it's going to be, it's just going to be wonderful for everyone that, and for the city. Um, I will certainly be making efforts to come to more games. That's for sure. Cause I want to experience that as well. Um, I know how much, as I say, my nephew's enjoying it. Um, is it the same as when I was a kid? Probably not. Do you ever speak to Tom White? He's a Sunderland fan. I bump into him occasionally and he, he was at the Gillingham game, I think the other week. Yeah. I bump into Tom occasionally and yeah, we have a, a catch up. Um, I haven't seen him for a while, so we've not been able to talk about good news. I think for <laughs> quite a few years. Um, what's the best memory covering Sunderland for Sky that is hmm. has there ever been one where you've been in the studio and the people with you have been like wow that was an atmosphere or what a game or well that's happened a few times I would say yeah the Everton game that night was was special um, I covered the parade for Sky Sports News they asked me to come back I think I left Sky Sports News at that point but they asked me to come back would I come up to Sunderland and, and cover the that was Mick McCarthy promotion under Mick McCarthy Oh five. You have much better years than I am. They just all merge into one, <laughs> into one for me. Uh, so that was that was a that was a lovely experience. And I, rem- I remember speaking to Mick on the pitch afterwards and asking him how many players he felt they needed to to mount a challenge in the Premier League or you know to survive ultimately. And they said about eight. I think we ended up signing about twelve or thirteen. But the problem was they were we're not very good. Twelve or thirteen bang average players, yeah. and we ended up going nice. straight back down. Uh, Mick was a good guy. Still is a good guy. Um, so that was good. Um, yeah, I think I think um, they're the ones I was I've been part of, and then I I think back to the, my favorite one of my favorite nights on Sky was promotion. Kevin Phillips, uh, Barry, you can join the dots for me. It was on. I think it was actually PTV. It was a Sky game, anyway. Was yeah. it not the when they were doing the box office? Was it? Yeah, they did football box. I don't know if it was maybe the very game might be a different one, but there was certainly one towards the end of the season that was box. I think maybe we scored five, did we? And, and Super Kev got a hat trick. Yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember the game. I can't remember the exact score. Which is yeah. Those days, those days is Sunderland fine. You're walking on air. They're going to come back, Connor. They're yeah. coming back. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have that day at whatever club it is. <laughs> it will be very like they're in the uh, fourth division at the minute, League Two, aren't they? Yes. Um, has a pundit ever said anything negative about Sunderland, which has annoyed you? Uh, I had a massive row about, I've had two massive rows since I've been at Sky with people. One was in the early days when there was this Spurs fan and we were playing Spurs. I, I think we maybe drew one all with them at their place. I might've got that wrong, but he was telling, saying something about Sunderland being a, you know, Mickey Mouse club in effect. And I basically said that Sunderland were a bigger club than Spurs and had this massive blazing row with him in front of like loads of people. Um, I couldn't really justify it or you know, give good reason for it. We got into the whole, how big's your stadium? How many fans do you get? How many league titles have you won? All this stuff. Which we would be winning at. That, that we, we were doing quite well on the top, tr- top trumps on those things. Yeah. But then it was more recent, you know, how many years have you done this? Where did you finish? Da, da, da. How good are your players? You know, little, little details exactly, like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, then, and, and then I had a similar row. I had a similar row with Gary Neville about Everton. Uh, because all right, they won the title in '85 and they were a big club, but everyone in 
Merseyside was, you know, I stand corrected on this a little bit before everyone in <laughs> every Everton fan hates me. Again, I had a massive row saying that Sunderland were a bigger club than Everton. I think once you've once you've felt part of Sunderland and you've been to the stadium every week and there's fifty thousand there or thereabouts and you're beating big teams, there's, there's not many teams that come close to that. You know, it's just the shame we didn't have the success at that time to to back it up in terms of trophies. You know, Europe would have been nice. In some seasons, we would have been Europe twice. Yeah. Um, so that would have been good. But yeah, I lost both arguments. I think it's fair to say. Do you ever feel the need to get defensive about the club? Is in if you know you were covering a game and somebody did say something negative? Um, well, my job would be, you know, again, I'd have a professional I hat mean, on. Off, off camera. Oh, off camera. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You'd yeah. be saying things. Yeah. But do you know what? If 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 we had certain people in the studio, like if Quinny was in the studio, I wouldn't need to because he'd do it for me because that man bleeds red and white and he still does. Do you think he should be involved with the club again? I don't think he wants to. I know. I just love him to be though. I loved it when he was here because he he felt like he had a proper representative. Listen, I do think, um, if Stuart's listening, I do think there should be someone uh, Tony Davidson is a Sunderland guy, isn't he? Yeah. But I think there should be people representing Sunderland on that, on that board or close to that boardroom that um, whoever the owners are have the club at heart. Fair few Sunderland players, former Sunderland players have been pundits on Sky over recent years. So what's your relationship with Niall Quinn, Sam Allardyce, Jermaine Defoe, insert however many others there are? Uh, well, Quinny's a mate. Yeah, Quinny's someone that I've spent a lot of time with socially, been to games with, um, he was a brilliant, brilliant sounding board for me when I was at Oxford. And I used to call him a lot and ask him various questions about X, Y, and Z. Um, he, so he's, he's fabulous. And when I did an Island game last year, he'd stopped working for Sky, but I made sure that he was sitting next to me when we were in the studio because I just think his contribution is huge. Um, he's a great guy. I, you know, I know... He's had his battle with people like Roy Keane down the years, but I, I couldn't find many people who would have a bad word about him. He truly is a saint, um, just a wonderful character, very giving. Um, who else did we say? Sam Allardyce, Sam Sam. <laughs> um, Sam's quite funny to be around. He's a very good talker, not such a good listener. Uh, Jermaine Defoe, I'm really enjoying working with at the moment. It's a shame he's not playing. Nobody feels that more than Jermaine at the moment, let me tell you. Yeah. He's desperate to play. Uh, time's running out for him. You know, he, he knows that. But he's still super fit. He still feels like he's got a lot to give in the Premier League. I have to say, I got that one completely wrong when he signed from Toronto. I've got a mate who who's, lives in Toronto and was watching the team and couldn't believe that we were signing him on this money and we were going to pay yeah. him this money. And I, I suppose that affected my view of that transfer and thought this is just another crazy deal that Ellie Short has, has allowed to happen. But he was brilliant for us, wasn't he? In terms of value for money, absolutely. And he still, we, we were talking the other day um, about Bradley and, and that that whole episode is, is so him, I mean that's it meant so much to him that whole episode is so close to his heart and we were talking about the Newcastle goal because we were we were talking about strikers and, and they'd done a, the guys in, in the back room had, have sort of put six goals together of his but they left that volley out and I said would you have put that in there he said that would be number one yeah well, you remember he came off the pitch crying yeah he said he said I was, he was so tired that he couldn't have had the energy to bring it down and do anything with it so he thought I'm just going to hit this yeah. see what happens and <laughs> could not have connected with it better so, yes I enjoy working with Jermaine who else did we say uh, there were the three I forgot yeah, yeah. I think Jermaine Defoe 
in a fantasy world. Sunderland get promoted. His time at Bournemouth comes to a natural conclusion. Think there would ever be any chance he would come back? Think Jermaine Defoe would be interested, or do you think he would leave that memory as a memory? And yeah, probably that. You know, his family's all in the south. I think we were lucky to to have him for as long as we did, really. In that in that sense, um, it would be nice, wouldn't it? But I, you know, it's very difficult. It's a, it's a, probably a too long an answer than you're hoping for. But when you're when you're building a team, you do need the experience in there. There isn't a formula you can say we need players under 25 or under 28 or with a resale value. You need one or two of the the old experienced fellows who've been there and done it, but you hope you're getting the ones that are still fit, that can still contribute. Uh, certainly, I mean, Super Kev went on until, what, 38? Possibly even older. And he was still a real handful in the championship scoring goals. He so. would always, I mean, he, if he... I think they're quite similar injuries, players in many ways. He would still be able to score goals because, I mean, what he did didn't rely on pace. Or yeah. Anything, just yeah. was naturally able to be there at the yeah. right time. And Defoe was similar. Well. Yeah, I think they're quite similar in that sense. Uh, Sunderland aside, what's your favourite ground to visit? Um, together, so it's hmm. atmosphere, facilities, you know, the, I don't know, the location, all that sort of stuff. What's the best ground? Uh, of course, I go to all the Premier League grounds on a, quite a regular basis. I would say that Old Trafford's special. It's It's got something about it. The facilities are pretty ordinary behind the scenes really? the studio is one of the smallest ones the the noise when they get going when there's seventy five thousand, you know and they're, and they're actually playing well which hasn't happened for quite a long time but that is that is quite a special place to be at and it feels like a you know it feels like a big club when you're there yeah. and feel the same um on a personal selfish note i love chelsea because it's 15 minutes from my house <laughs> uh arsenal's great because there's a girl there that brings in incredible food for us from the minute we arrive to the I minute we Arsenal's leave. Press box is really good as well. The press box is great as well, but we don't get the chance to go down there when we're when we're doing a Super Sunday. But they bring us food there, and there's no other club that does that. Um, they just stick us in the studio and, and bring us a you know some crusty sandwiches at, at sort of five o'clock. But they really look after us, so I like going. There. It's a proper football club, Arsenal. They, you know they're quite a classy football club. I'm really looking forward to the new Spurs stadium because I think it's going to be. If it ever opens. really special, yeah, that's a long, that's a longer story, isn't it? Um, but there's there's nowhere like for me that feeling that I still get when you park up near the river, walk down to the King's Arms for a couple, walk across the bridge, <laughs> that swell of the crowd, the fanzine sellers, program sellers, the smells of the burgers. The sickly smell of the burgers. I was going to say, I don't eat them now. Bad experience. <laughs> the cheap sweets. And then and then walking in and seeing the lights on, seeing the stadium and being so proud of it. There's nothing that beats that. Good answer. <laughs> Good answer. Um, we've got a few quick fire final questions. I All promise right. we'll be done after these quick ones. So, favourite FCFC player, you have to pick one. We did. You did give three, but pick one. If I had to name one player, it would be Kevin Phillips. Manager? Alan Durban slash Peter Reid. Season? Um, I think you've got two answers. Yeah, it's tricky because the 105 points was amazing. Um, But the two seasons finishing seventh were amazing as well. How much did you see at that time? A lot, yeah. I was going to away games and stuff as well. So you would have been working at Sky though? Um, the first, the first season, the playoffs season, I was in Chesterfield and was 
going to a lot of games at the weekend up here and then you know Stockport Berry Barnsley Sheffield Wednesday um, those type of grounds I, I saw a lot of Sunderland in my early years around London um, at various places on the south coast and, and through the city so those you know they're my best times going in the away end and and seeing our team win how many random people have kissed you <laughs> I think I've got away with it really have you yeah, oh, I always yeah. get kissed <laughs> you're very kissable, Colin. <laughs> you're very, I'm not. I'm not so kissable. I'm a bit. Yeah, yeah. A bit spiky. Does this make you shave? Would you? Yes. Yeah. Is that like a directive? Well, it's. It's. No. I don't have a contract that says you must shave. But if I turned up unshaven, it wouldn't be a good look for me. Would you grow a beard as soon as the day you walk out of the sky? Where you have like a. Gold I do every summer. There. Yeah. Is that because you can? Yes. Would you always have a beard? It's not so much because I can. It's more because I can't be asked to shave. Yeah. I That's don't, it's something I, it's something in life I do not enjoy doing. I don't know if anybody does, but you know, I, I, I don't shave every day. I'll shave, I shave today for you. Thanks. Um, but I'll shave on, I will shave next time on Sunday morning. Wasn't Richard Keyes meant to be the, the hairiest man? Didn't he have to shave like twice a day? No comment. No comment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, favorite goal? Oh, Super Kev against Chelsea. Any others? Notable mentions? Jermaine Defoe's, I suppose we'll just talk about Jermaine that. Defoe's was special. Um, Quinney's at St. James's Park. Super Kev's at St. James's Park in the rain. I watched that game in California on holiday. That was special. Uh, Fabio Barini's, because that uh, the goal at Wembley was just, you know, I didn't expect him to score, didn't expect us to score. Angle. Yeah, yeah was brilliant. Right in front of us as well. Favourite game? Um, I know it's supposed to be quick fire. It's okay. Probably beating Chelsea 4-0. 4-1. 4-1. Should have been 4-0. <laughs> been 4-0. <laughs> it's 4-0 at halftime. I think I left it uh, at halftime. Yeah. <laughs> no, that that was it because that... That was the peak of that. Yeah, it was really. It was thought, wow, we can achieve anything. Uh, what about best game that is in Sunderland that you've covered? I did Liverpool-Man City last year, 4-3. That was a good game. <sighs> Very good, yeah. I mean, there's there's good games, and then it's the quality of the football. And I have to say, I've been a bit disappointed so far this season. I was talking about this with the guys the other night off camera. We haven't really this season had an amazing game on Sky. Anyway, I don't think there have been that many that haven't been off Sky either. But you know, when you're getting these head to heads like City Liverpool, City Spurs, you're expecting something really quite special. It we haven't quite hit the heights yet. I don't know quite why that is. Uh, I think the. I think Liverpool are the only one that's really hitting expectations at the minute. Because Spurs have been They are, there. but they've been doing it without really yeah. being at their best. We, the Which is, might be a good sign, because you might think there's a lot more to come from them. Yeah, maybe. I, I still think City will win it by about 10 points. Yeah, I don't think... I think Liverpool will get closer, but I still mm. think City are, are too good. Uh, best moment in your career covering football? Non-Sunderland, just best altogether. Good question. Um, had some really amazing days when we've done the, the title celebrations. And I suppose the one that springs to mind, is, it's quite unlikely, is, is 2016 Leicester. And being there the day that um, they were handed the title, they'd already won the title. So it was a bit weird, but they still played well. The noise from, uh, what time was the kickoff that day? It was maybe five. No, it was a tea, it was a tea time. Tea time game. So the noise from... Game. Yeah, from probably three o'clock through till uh, nine o'clock at night. It didn't stop. It was just incredible crescendo the whole way through. 
um, they realized that was their fairy tale moment. It was never going to be like that again. I think this is why we've seen such an outpouring this week, really. Because yeah. that guy made all that possible, in, in my mind. Everything obviously aligned. There was probably no point until about April where they thought they were going to win the title, despite being at the top most of the way through. Um, I've done ones at, at Chelsea and Man City as well, but they don't come near to that in terms of the raw emotion of, of that day. For me, for me, you know, I've done England games as well recently. I loved doing the Spain game uh, last month. Did you go out there? Yeah. yeah. They, they're special games to do as well. And that always feels to me like an honour when I'm fronting an England game because I know that people who want to watch the national team are, are watching us and we've got to, we're the guys on the front line then. Um, and you do feel a special honour doing that. Do you keep an eye on like viewing figures? Yeah. Yeah. What, what is the average viewing figure for a Super Sunday? No comment. No comment. I don't know. Is that available online? I, really I don't. I don't, I don't honestly know. Um, we as a company don't broadcast it. No. I think sometimes things come out. I mean, we do monitor what games get what. Um, so I've got a pretty clear idea on. So is that why most United of the time are always on because Leeds United must be the most. Popular. What do you think? Yeah, it must be viewing figures because <laughs> Leeds are always. <laughs> well, on. Let, all right, I'll let you into a secret. Uh, Manchester United doesn't matter how well they're playing. Yeah, doesn't matter where they're playing. I know. I've. Watch them play Huddersfield at home in really boring games before. Big numbers. Yeah. That's why, until I think it was earlier this year, was it, that their first FA Cup game in goodness knows how long was not on on television. Um, Manchester United, Liverpool, uh, Arsenal. This is in order. Uh, Chelsea, Man City Spurs. And then you're talking about Leeds United, Newcastle United, Sunderland. Good company. I mean, not quite in that order, but they listen, we, listen we're not too far away from it when we're doing well. We're not too far away from it. That's why we'll be on, on television an awful lot next year. I look forward to it. I know they started last season. We were on until they realised that we were not very good. <laughs> we, yes. we were on like the first four, game, four out of five games yeah. last year. And they're like, yeah, well, exactly. But, it's, but as I say to you, it's not just the team and how well they're performing. It's the atmosphere at games as well. Yeah. Um, so and yeah, it wasn't great, was it? Come on. I, hit, I missed two games last year voluntarily. It must have been bad. It must have been bad. I, I, I can't believe my brother's still got a season ticket. I have to say, through everything, he's still, you know, and for him, there are 20,000 like him that through thick and thin have stuck with it. And and they, to me, are the backbone of our football it's, club. And the reason that I talk about our football club as a, as a giant football club. It's a vicious circle. I say to my girlfriend every year, it's the same process. I'm like, Beth, I'm, I'm not getting a new one. I promise you, we'll get a January. Like, I'm not getting a new one. Then it comes to me and I uh, kind of want to go back again. I'm like, no, I'm still getting one. Then we'll sign a player. I'm like, Beth, I'm there. I'm sorry. I can't do it <laughs> I can't go because otherwise I'll just go to every game anyway and pay more money. Yeah. So she, she accepts it. She knows it's a process. <laughs> uh, so Dave, thanks for coming on. And I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. It. I feel like I've been rambling the whole way through. It's all right. I'd be Nine amazed minutes. if anyone's listened to the bitter end. I'm sure they have. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for obviously uh, we're able to get guests like you on now, which is brilliant for us. Um, Bob Murray on next Thursday. Super Bob. Yeah, that'll be really good. Yeah, I, I have been a, an ambassador of the foundation. And I think he's he's done extraordinary, extraordinary work, which is which is sometimes forgotten. Yeah, well, Stadium Light, Academy Light, that's all him. He's yeah. laid the foundations. If there's one thing I would say to Bob, I would ask him if he, and he probably would say no to this, should they have built an extra tier? I think if it had continued, they would have. There's no doubt. They would because have at that time, it was all on an upward curve. 
But instead of investing in the club, in the team, the money was spent on 8,000, 9,000 extra seats, whatever it was. Um, and that to me has become a little bit, certainly in the last few years, became a bit of a white elephant. Yeah, I suppose. But with supply and demand, I can understand why they did it at the time, but in hindsight, yeah, it's a it's a fair question, isn't it? Mm. So thanks for coming on. Um, and I'm sorry for taking you up for an hour and 34 minutes. <laughs> but it's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed every good, bit of it. Good, good. Thanks, Connor. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.